Asha Ann Simons. It's Friday. Ann Simons. It's Friday at noon, so it's time for our weekly news recap, where we catch you up on the biggest state and local stories that you might have missed, but you got to know about. Stories like these. The district says it currently only has about half of the bus drivers it needs to transport students who qualify to be bused to school. Chicago Public Schools is undertaking a large-scale water distribution effort this morning. Today's heat is affecting the city's migrant population, many still living on the sidewalks outside police stations. I am in the shade here at North Avenue Beach. It is stifling out here. Our panel this week to help break down those top stories and more, Kim Bellware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome back, Kim. Hi, Sasha. Good to see you. Nader Issa's here, education reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times. Hey, Nader. Hey, happy Friday. And WBEZ city government and politics reporter Tessa Weinberg. Welcome, Tessa. Thanks for having me. I want to start with what everybody in Chicago was talking about this week. You guessed it. It was hot. Right. Uh, The heat index, it hit 116 on Wednesday, breaking an all time record that day. I mean, was the city prepared for this, Tessa? I mean, they had their six cooling centers open. Hours were extended late. Folks could still go to library senior centers. Um, You know, city was putting out many notices, stay indoors. But folks were, you know, kind of still on your own to to navigate it. Um, You know, our colleague Michael Puente reported on how asylum seekers were still just kind of on their own looking for shade on the sidewalk, Mm -hmm. you know, relying on donations from others. Um, And six cooling centers for a city as large as Chicago is just not that many. And we saw schools, you know, themselves dealing with intermittent AC issues. And so I think the whole city was just kind of grappling with it. We've been seeing excessive heat through the country all summer, Kim. And, And now that it finally hits Chicago, how do you think that we handle it compared to other cities? Well, I think there is a certain awareness. You know, we had that deadly heat wave in 1995. I think paying attention to kind of the community resources that are available is something that Mayor Johnson's talked about a lot. You know, so we've been through it. You know, we have cooling centers. We set up a good model after that 95 heat wave. But uh, while we're in, you know, okay shape, you know, using maybe mobile buses to, mm-hmm. to cool people down and having an emergency alert system that's a little more mature and we've been running it well um, you know, for the past few decades, we still have these problems. You know, I had seen reports that a lot of the cooling centers weren't very um, robustly attended because if you can't get to one, then it's not a lot of use to you. I mean, were six cooling centers enough, you think? Yeah, that's... It, it seems like not because they weren't being very well used. And, um, you know, if, if they were overflowing, then that would definitely mean no. But, you know, it, it's hard because you need capacity, but at the same time, you need accessibility. Yeah. Extreme weather is particularly hard on unhoused people. Let's talk more about that, Tessa. I mean, do, do we know how the homeless population fared? Yeah, this I think, week? like Kim mentioned, you know, transportation and accessing these cooling centers is, you know, always yeah. an issue. Um, some of our colleagues kind of fanned out throughout the city and they stopped by um, the Garfield Community Center. And they, you know, there were folks there who were staying in a nearby shelter who said this is where they come during the day to cool off, to look for housing resources. Um, sometimes, you know, went out with some folks with the night ministry who mm-hmm. they were out passing out water bottles, giving folks medical attention if needed. But you know, the, the cooling centers, even though they extended their hours, you know, later in the evening, they're not open, most of them, 24 hours. So it's just, it's not necessarily a solution if yeah. you're someone who's living on the streets and needs somewhere to sleep that night. Yeah, and you mentioned our colleague checking on, on migrants as well. There was a Block Club Chicago story, too, about migrants who'd been living at a police station, um, and they were being forced to 
stay outside all day. What's that about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're reporting that um, volunteers and asylum seekers at the near north police district um, were saying they had to be outside during the day, um, even in the heat that we saw. Um, You know, this is something that I think at some police stations has been kind of a long running policy. Um, When we reported out of the 12th district police station earlier this summer, that was kind of the just the routine that the station had to get clean during the day. So folks staying there knew that they had to be out of there from the morning to the afternoon, kind of, you know, pack up their belongings, pile them along the walls and had to, you know, either just hang out outside, go look for so work. This was routine, but it just so happened to be on the hottest days of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nader, how did the heat impact city and, and suburban schools? You know, a lot is made about failures at CPS or failures at schools. I mean, we've been writing about it and we've written about it in the past. A lot of times AC breaks down, the buildings are old, the average age of a CPS school is 83 years, so the infrastructure just just isn't there to support uh, sort of robust air quality. Mm -hmm. But if it's done right, schools can actually be really helpful for students, like a lot of other things... um, in their lives in in terms of getting a, a cool space, a lot of families might not have good AC at home. And so if a kid can go spend the hottest time of the day at school and have AC, it can be really helpful. And it seems like that was the case this year. There were a few hiccups here and there. There were a couple schools that terrible timing but had power outages. And so the mm-hmm. district worked with ComEd to try to get those fixed. But by and large, it seemed like anytime there was a breakdown in AC, the district had a backup uh, system to replace it or move kids to another classroom somewhere that did have working AC. And so, yeah, it's it's something that uh, can yeah. be helpful being at a school in this type of heat wave. Yeah, a lot of old school buildings, to your point, they don't have air conditioning or they have limited air conditioning. And I know CPS canceled outdoor activities. I'm one of the parents who got the several emails and and robocalls, you know, telling me that it's going to be hot tomorrow. You know, be careful. Uh, Did the heat get any parents talking about moving opening date back to after Labor Day? Yeah. I mean, that's been, you know, a contentious issue in Chicago the past couple of years. Districts around the state and the suburbs, they've been moving closer uh, to the middle of August for years. And CPS sort of stuck by its post-Labor Day start, Mm -hmm. never was moving back. Once COVID hit, Mayor Lori Lightfoot wanted to bring kids back earlier. Uh, She was talking about learning loss, getting kids back in school to to pick up their learning. And so that date, just the past two, three years, has snuck earlier and earlier. And we talked to Stacey Davis-Gates, the Chicago Teachers Union president, uh, on the first day of school. She had some pretty harsh words for the district, despite now this sort of really great relationship between the mayor's office because there's a CTU, uh, former CTU official as the mayor mm-hmm. um, and the union. She had really harsh words saying this was done unilaterally. It was, it was very haphazardly done. And they, the, the CTU sent a letter to the Chicago Public Schools CEO a couple days ago requesting uh, negotiations over the start of the, the school year. So mm-hmm. that might be something that changes again, sort of back and forth next year. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're breaking down the biggest stories of the week with a panel of wonderful Chicago journalists. We've got Nader Issa of the Chicago Sun-Times, Kim Bellware of the Washington Post, and WBEZ's Tessa Weinberg. Uh, sticking with you for another moment here, Nader, because as we mentioned, kids are back in school. This is also the first time in recent history that a Chicago mayor 
has children who are attending public school. So, I mean, what was Brandon Johnson doing to kick off the school year? So we talked about this this newfound relationship between the mayor's office and the CTU. I followed the mayor and the CPS CEO, and not surprisingly, but unusually, the Chicago Teachers Union president all touring schools together on the first day on Monday. And you could just tell there's, I think there's a little bit of growing pains, a little awkwardness from officials who aren't part of the CTU, were not part of the CTU, and are now trying to get used to the mayor and the the teacher union president being side by side. Mm. They started at a West Side school that actually, uh, we've talked about this here on Reset, um, 10 years ago was on Rahm Emanuel's school closing list. And they intentionally did that to show if these schools that are under-enrolled that the city says, you know, don't have what they need or don't have the kids that they need to function, if they have resources poured in, they can turn into really high-functioning, robust schools for mm-hmm. the community. And so this is uh, this is school, Bidler Elementary on the west side. That's where they started. They did a tour of a couple schools. They ended up at uh, Kenwood Academy, where the mayor's son goes to school. Like you said, yeah. he's uh, he's the first mayor. He says he's not sure if there's ever been a mayor to send their kid to CPS. Uh, we might have to fact check we'll have that. We'll have to look that, look that up. It's yeah. been a long while. Yeah, I mean, Kim and, and Tessa, do you find it interesting that, that Johnson's really the first recent mayor, or in his case, what he says, the only to send his kids to, to public school? Yeah, I remember that was um, going back to Rahm Emanuel when he had school-age children, that was, you know, this touchy subject. He said, you know, my kids are off limits, and that was something he just didn't want to negotiate on, but it really left him open to criticisms of, um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, whatever industry, and it's like eating your own dog food, you know, like if you're going to be the leader of the city and the school district, you know, is, is it good enough for your kids? If it's not, what is that saying about where the school district ranks in your priorities? Right. Like how much confidence does it inspire that your administration is you know, going to be supportive of that? So, yeah, it, it is it is definitely um, notable. And, and, you know, like Nader said, there's also just this really rich history of Johnson in particular being an educator, being a former union mm-hmm. member. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to picture that visual of everybody sort of walking hand in hand or side by side, as, as you described, Nader. What are your thoughts, Tessa? Yeah, no, I agree. I feel like him being a former teacher, you know, union organizer, that was a big part of his campaign of, you know, him having this connection to students and youth. I think it makes sense of that's where he would naturally choose to send his own kids. Yeah. Nader, here's something else. Two thousands of Chicago kids still have no bus service this year. What's causing that problem? Yeah. So this is a this is a problem that has sort of started uh, when kids came back from the pandemic back to school and has sort of lingered. It's a problem not just at CPS, but around the country. They're having trouble finding bus drivers. And despite holding tons of job fairs, raising wages for bus drivers, there's still a massive shortage. Last year, the district sort of failed thousands, hundreds, uh, hundreds of kids, maybe up to thousands at some points mm-hmm. of special education students who by law are required to be provided transportation to school. It's uh, for a lot of special education students and homeless students too, they have some of the most difficulty getting to classes. Right. And so there are protections, districts have a responsibility to get them to school. The way that the system was set up though, they weren't necessarily prioritized. And so once there were bus driver shortages. They were among some of the kids who, I mean, there were families I talked to who for months didn't have transportation to school. Are bus drivers just not being paid enough? 
it's kind of not a great job. Like if you think back, uh, I, I took a bus to school when I was mm-hmm. younger and I mean, it, it's it's tough hours. It's hard to build your life around it, right? Yeah. It's, it's a weird split Morning shift. and afternoon. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, the same goes for bus aides too. It's a tough job. Um, you also, while you're driving, have to sort of be caring for all of these kids. It's, it, it's a really tough job. And so uh, as we saw the job market shift after COVID, this is one of the areas that still hasn't hasn't recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, the district now this year said, you know, we're going to prioritize special education and homeless students because that's who we have to get to school. And so the knock-on effect now is without enough bus drivers, they're not being able to send general education students on buses to selective enrollment and magnet schools. Yeah. And that has a lot of parents upset because that's something they were promised when they got a spot at those schools. So some families who lost bus service, they're being offered this transportation stipend. Yeah, they get, it's valued at $35 a month. It's a CTA pass for the student and an accompanying adult to take them to school on the CTA, Mm -hmm. on a bus, on a train. A parent at the Board of Education meeting yesterday made the point, you can't really put like a five-year-old kindergartner or a third grader on the on the CTA bus or the train by themselves. And for working parents, it's it's hard. You can't take a 30-minute, 20-minute ride on the CTA in the morning and then still make it to work. So it's a dilemma for a lot of families. So some are getting a monthly cash stipend? Some are, they're, they're getting the CTA pass. The, the students who get a monthly cash stipend, uh, it's $500. Those are the, the students who are in special education. If they have the option to opt out of transportation and find their own way, mm-hmm. and they get $500 in assistance to do that. I see. Any surprises, Kim, that CPS can't find enough bus drivers? No, like Nader was saying, it's a problem nationwide. Yeah. So unsurprising that we're dealing with it. Um, it keeps coming here, back. Here at home, too. And yeah, Every you year. Know, like you said, it's a tough job, and it's a lot of, you know, the hours are difficult, and it's also a lot of liability. Yeah, a lot going on with the, the thousands of migrant students that CPS is making room for as well, Nader. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, it's a tough situation because CPS has a lot of students who come to Chicago. I mean, Chicago is a city of immigrants. Every year there, there are families moving to Chicago, but the challenge this time is, um, there are a lot of families coming at once. And we know the Republican governor in Texas, Greg Abbott, he's been, um, sort of sending, busloads of, uh, of families to Democrat-run cities as a sort of, I don't know, gotcha, like, look, you guys said you're sanctuary cities, so we're going to make you prove it. And it's it's causing a humanitarian crisis in a lot of different cities. We saw Los Angeles, for example, when they had the tropical storm last week, there were, um, there were families who were arriving then, and it's unsafe for those families, and, and the city it creates a challenge. So here for these, these families, it's tough to, one, identify them, Who's actually here? Where do they fit in school? Which schools have resources for them? Mm-hmm. And especially with a teacher shortage, not having enough bilingual teachers all around, making sure that those resources are coordinated to actually meet the needs of the families where they are, it's yeah. a challenge. You can check out some great reporting on a migrant family's journey from South America to CPS. It's from former Reset producer and current education reporter, Nareda Moreno. That's over at WBEZ.org. Chicago's not alone in this migrant crisis, of course, as we know, Kim. We're also seeing cities like New York struggling with this influx, too, right? Yeah, New York, um, L.A., Chicago, you know, just a lot of cities that have 
uh, Democratic mayors, you know, just Democratic population. Like they mm-hmm. said, it's it's kind of this political stunt by Republican governors in states like Texas and Florida to embarrass and strain the resources of these democratic cities and these, you know, so-called sanctuary cities. And, you know, important thing is normally when there's any kind of mass migration, uh, what both former Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Mayor Brandon Johnson have said is that if they let them know, if they give them some kind of heads up, something that let's work together somehow Mm -hmm. to make sure that we have the resources. But, you know, getting these um, busloads of, you know, you know, 10 at a time that L.A. is getting, for instance, or New York um, just makes everybody scramble. And it it makes for a dangerous situation, too. Yeah. Before we take a pause, I'm going to put Nader back in the hot seat because we do have to talk about a couple of suburban school stories while you're here. There was an uproar in southwest suburban Homer Glen over a teacher. What happened? Yeah. So there was this teacher who parents found had made social media posts um, in the past some references to Satanism, some references to violence. There was also a post where she said she has bipolar disorder and has been prone to episodes where she may get violent. And that made parents uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. They they put pressure on the district, um, which fired her. And she had just been hired this year to, to rotate between three schools in the district. Was that typical of the, the village school board to check an applicant's social media profile before they hire? They do background checks. They do uh, they they do the sort of usual employment check for um, for for new hires, but it seems they didn't do the extensive mm. social media check. And you know, it's a tough situation because you're obviously here dealing with a person who has um, a mental health disorder and. Is seems to have wanted to work through it and pursue the career that they really love, but then you know parents they get uncomfortable. This is their child; they mm-hmm. want they want them to be safe and have a sort of predictable situation, and so it it causes a really tough uh, yeah challenge for how how to handle it. And parents in North Suburban Highland Park are speaking out for some other concerns as the school year started. What's going on there? Yeah, this is a community, obviously, we know dating back to the 4th of July shooting that has dealt with really tragic gun violence. Mm -hmm. Not just that, but a few months ago, there was a 16-year-old who was killed, not at a school in the community, by another teenager. And so parents now have been really worried about their kids' safety in schools. They're demanding that the schools set up um, weapons detectors at every entrance of every school. Right now, they have one at the main entrance of each school. And, you know, covering CPS a lot more than suburban schools, it's sort of this interesting dynamic because we know Chicago has dealt with a lot of gun violence. And we also know there's a lot of high schools where there are metal detectors at the doors. um, But we haven't really seen whether those are effective. There's no proof or evidence that those help stop any type of violence, help prevent weapons from coming into the school. I think the existence of them makes... Again, I'm speaking from a parent standpoint. It makes me feel safer when I walk into my kid's uh, CPS school and I see that the you know that I have to walk through a metal detector. I, it, there's a level of ease immediately. Yeah, and I, I think that might be it more like making people feel safe. Now, we've also talked plenty about school police and sort of this militarization or, or policing of schools in Chicago. So I, 
I don't know. It, it, there isn't really evidence. We even heard the chief of safety and security at CPS, uh, a board member, asked her a couple, uh, last month whether there's proof that metal detectors help prevent violence or help keep schools safe. And she said there really, mm, yeah. there really isn't. And so it'll be interesting to see what, what pans out in Highland Park. All right, let's take a pause. That's Nader Issa of the Chicago Sun-Times, Kim Bellware of the... And we're back now with more Reset and more of the Weekly News Recap. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and with us is a panel of journalists breaking down the biggest state and local stories. Let's get back into it. Several suburban libraries were forced to close temporarily after getting bomb threats. There were five threats in the last week. Mayor Brandon Johnson is just over the 100-day mark leading the city on the campaign trail. He made some big promises, so the question now is, has he kept them? A federal jury in Chicago has convicted a former chief of staff to longtime Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan of lying under oath to protect his once-powerful boss. Tim Mapes was convicted yesterday of perjury and attempted obstruction of justice. In the studio with me are Nader Issa, education reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, Kim Bellware, national and breaking news reporter for the Washington Post, and WBEZ's city government and politics reporter, Tessa Weinberg. All right, let's turn to politics. I'm looking at you, Tessa, because a jury found the longtime chief of staff to the once powerful House Speaker Mike Madigan guilty of lying to protect his former boss. What are the main takeaways and, and how might they impact Madigan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Mapes was convicted of perjury and attempted obstruction of justice for lying to a grand jury in 2021 during um, a criminal investigation into Madigan. Um, They found that jurors that Mapes lied on, you know, every occasion identified by federal prosecutors, he could face up to uh, five years for perjury. And then the maximum sentence um, is 20 years for the attempted obstruction of justice. Um, You know, his conviction really, I think, shows the cost of his loyalty to Madigan and also signals, you know, the kind of, you know, fall of Madigan's political machine. Um, Mm. Several women lawmakers and also um, political consultants who had alleged um, harassment and retaliation by Madigan and his aides. They also spoke out of that, saying that this conviction, you know, would help send a message to other victims um, throughout, you know, Springfield and Illinois politics. Um, and yeah, we'll see. Madigan is still up for going on trial next year. So yeah, I mean, how how much longer? You said next year? Yeah, next year. Yeah, I believe so it's next Taking April. forever. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Mayor Johnson, let's talk about him. He's now been in office for more than 100 days. Can you believe it, gang? Yeah, went that's, by fast. Well, where does 100 <laughs> days go? Uh, so, I mean, that's seen as a milestone. It's a chance to really just check in on how his agenda is progressing. Uh, How would you say he's doing so far, Tessa? Yeah, you know, he has taken a slower pace than his predecessors when it comes to his cabinet appointments, to his legislative agenda. He really calls it deliberate and saying, you know, these are decisions that shouldn't be rushed, um, that he's building a collaborative government, and that's evidence of that slow pace. Um, But you know, we'll see. He's starting to build momentum for some of his campaign promises, um, like bring Chicago home to generate revenue to fund homelessness um, prevention services. There was a long kind of awaited uh, subject matter hearing on treatment, not trauma, that would send kind of more mental health professionals to deal with crisis calls. So the groundwork is starting to to get laid. I think a lot of eyes will be on his, um, you know, first budget he's mm-hmm. putting forward to see how that falls through. Um, so, yeah, a lot of city council members, though, they did say if they they feel like he has done a good job of reaching out to them, um, to, to being collaborative. And so it seems like he's really trying to, you know, make inroads rather than, for example, his former predecessor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who um, accomplished maybe more in her first hundred days, but maybe started to burn some bridges more quickly because of mm. that. Are you seeing that groundwork, Kim and Nader? Like, what are your thoughts on the Johnson administration just a little more than three months in? 
Yeah, I think to Tessa's point, there has been um, some slowness, you know, the cabinet appointments, even just kind of getting um, his office staffed up. And, you know, I'll be interested to see in a few more months um, what to check in with some of his supporters, especially who uh, really backed him for his progressive stances on things like law enforcement. Um, You know, we're going through this, uh, getting a new Chicago superintendent. And Mm -hmm. I think there's already, you know, kind of some questions of is he backing off of this stance that he took towards, you know, you know, being much more of a criminal justice reformer, you know, maybe not having so many resources flow to police. And, you know, I I would be interested to see in a few more months if advocates feel he has uh, shifted a little more to the middle. You know, there's kind of a funny moment uh, at the start of the week tied to his first 100 days. I mentioned earlier we were touring schools on the first day of CPS. Right. And uh, Mayor Johnson sat down in a preschool classroom on one of those little kitty chairs at a kitty table and was playing with magnetiles with uh, with preschoolers. And he's telling them, um, you know, can, can you tell all these folks that 100 days isn't all that all that much? And a lot of adults <laughs> around here, a lot of media think 100 days is a really long time. Can you can you let them know it's not a not a long time because the, they can count to 100 now right and and the kids are playing with the tiles and not listening they had no idea what he was talking about at all it went right over their heads i'm sure uh chicago leaders they're also considering this tiered real estate transfer tax for homes that they say uh, will actually raise a hundred million dollars a year in order to fight homelessness so, so let's get back to that point tessa how would it work yeah, so this is um, a proposal that Mayor Brennan Johnson's administration, they've been briefing older persons on it this week, um, and it's one of his campaign promises. But the new kind of compromise, it, it does change things up um, rather than the original proposal from advocates to um, simply increase the, the real estate transfer tax on all properties valued over a million dollars. This one's going to be a more tiered you know, approach, mm-hmm. a marginal tax rate. Um, so actually properties... Um, that are under a million dollars would actually get a tax cut. Okay. Um, and so the rate would be it would decrease by 20 percent. Um, so which, you know, uh, older person says the majority of home sales. So a lot of people, you know, would see a tax decrease. Okay. Um, and then the portion of property that's valued at one million to one and a half million would then see a tax increase and it'd be taxed at 2%, which is less than what organizers mm. were originally calling Going for. Going up from three quarters of a percent to 2%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and then the portion of uh, sales that are over $1.5 million, that would be taxed at 3%, which is four times the current rate. And so that would be the highest tax. Um, and yeah, overall conservative estimates are that it would bring in $100 million in mm-hmm. revenue, which is less than the $160 million in revenue. The uh, original proposal was estimated to bring in, but advocates of this proposal have said, you know, the housing market fluctuates, mm-hmm. there is potential for it to bring in even more. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the broad brushstrokes of that. Yeah, and I want to underscore your point earlier. Let's let's highlight again, most home buyers would get a tax cut, right? 94% would pay less mm-hmm. uh, with this uh, structure. And, and this tax change would still have to be approved by voters, right? Yes, yeah. So it would still have to be approved by voters and uh, Alderperson said they hope to introduce um, a resolution next month, hopefully pass by October. And then if that happens, um, voters would get to decide on this question in March of 2024. And then it would go back to city council to actually enact this tax increase. Then that would be authorized. And I should note as well, of you know, the funds would go to homelessness prevention. And under the current kind of broad brushstrokes of the proposal, um, affordable housing developments would be exempted from the tra- tax mm. as well. I want to dive just a little deeper into the homeless situation in this city. Uh, There's a new report that came out yesterday. It was from the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. 
what did it say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this report um, was basically giving figures of um, how many people were unhoused in 2021, and based on the latest data they looked at, and they estimated that more than 68,000 Chicagoans were unhoused, and they really aimed to try to give a more comprehensive look at homelessness in the city by not just counting, you know, folks who might be, you know, on the streets or in shelters, but also this definition of, of doubled up, which right. could you're be, staying in someone's place, you're mm-hmm. on a couch, right? right. Definitely. Yeah. And so um, that's how you get that 68,000 plus number. Um, but they also found that, um, you know, there was a, a 50 percent increase in the number of people who were um, staying um, in shelters or streets from the previous year. And that was kind of a dramatic rise as well. Um, and the the coalition is one of the groups that is supporting and calling for the Bring Chicago Home Plan, that real estate threat. Uh, real estate transfer tax increase to fund homelessness prevention. So they point to this kind of underscoring just the the great need that there is. Yeah, and the majority of those experiencing homelessness were people of color. Again, as Tessa pointed out, unhoused increased nearly 50%. Kim and Nader, are you surprised at all to hear that the numbers went up? Or does it just reflect what you're seeing out there with your reporting? Yeah, we know, especially after the pandemic, housing and security really increased and especially um, with more people losing their jobs, more people losing stable housing situations. Um, and now too, I mean, we, we talked about this earlier, but uh, families coming up from the southern border, mm-hmm. that also is contributing to the number of people who are unhoused in the city and, and looking for resources for shelter, for food, all of it. Yeah. Before I take you out the hot seat, Tessa, I don't want to skip the good news that we have on government efforts to help the unhoused. Uh, Tell us about the inspector general's report. Yeah, it's pretty rare for the inspector general to be praising, you know, city department. I know. Where'd that come from? Um, But they basically looked at the Department of Family and Support Services, um, you know, outreach to unhoused folks and found that um, 94 percent of residents who were in these homelessness encampments um, were actually able to secure housing through um, programming that the department does. And then they checked back in five months later and found that still, um, you know, 78 percent of them were still housed and said, you know, that was a successful use of um, those accelerated accelerated moving events, mm-hmm. which is um, basically when someone experiencing homelessness um, goes through all the steps to secure housing one day. Um, and then the report also looked at uh, when it comes to clearing homelessness encampments, which tend to be really confusing and haphazard um, that they found the department actually was doing a good job, you know, putting notices up to advertise the encampments that they weren't displacing folks permanently. And so, yeah, they had a lot of high praise there. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're breaking down the biggest stories of the week with a panel of Chicago journalists. Nader Issa of the Chicago Sun-Times, Kim Bellware of the Washington Post, and WBEZ's Tessa Weinberg. So, Kim, in other city news, there's an alderman who wants to create this quiet zone around a downtown abortion provider. Tell us more. Yeah, this is Alderman Bill Conway of the 34th 34th Ward, and he wants a quiet zone uh, just to kind of expand the city's existing bubble ordinance. This is going on um, around Family Planning Associates. It's this River North Health Center that has been really loudly and aggressively protested by anti-abortion demonstrators. This issue actually came to light because of um, this app called bike lane uprising where Mm -hmm. you can report obstructions to the bike lane and people were reporting that these 
um, protesters were in the bike lane. They were obstructing the public way. Um, so that's how it got to the alderman's attention. But really, there uh, this bubble ordinance, which goes back to 2009, this was originally designed for this issue that we're talking about. So uh, this ordinance says in the city of Chicago, you can't be within eight feet of someone who is within a 50-foot radius from you know a medical facility and kind of pass out literature and engage in oral protest and um, unsolicited counseling, that kind of thing. The difficulty is that this has not been very well enforced. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has been around um, a health clinic, an abortion clinic in the city and has seen protesters, you know, nobody's stopping them from uh, shouting, you know, things at, at the people who are going in. Um, the patients and the staffers at Family Planning Associates said that this um, protesting, you know, a lot of times it's amplified. They're using bullhorns. They're using speakers. Is creating a really bad experience. Mm-hmm. It's disruptive. It's disruptive to people who live nearby. I was going to say neighbors are also uh, concerned. Yeah, right? and and there is a, you know there is a free speech issue, um, but typically courts have sided with cities that want to have these ordinances if they're content neutral and mm-hmm. more about. Um, sound and there are a couple of these already in places um, around town, including River North. So um, this is, you know, this is something that even Mayor Johnson said he wants to, you know, he wants to step up enforcement in this. But um, yeah, right now they're they're trying to get another one of these uh, zones established to provide some relief right. in this case. Uh, just to clarify, Family Planning Associates, which is the, the clinic that we're we're talking about here, they're in the West Loop. West Loop. I'm sorry, yeah. I said River North. They're in the West Loop. West Washington, yeah. yes. Yes. Uh, let's turn to the suburbs, Nader. Several libraries received threats this week. What happened there? Yeah, so there were uh, quite a few libraries in Morton Grove, Park Ridge, Gurney, Oak Park, uh, Wilmette. They got, they all got threats, uh, bomb threats. Police responded. They didn't really find anything uh, wrong. And they said that the, the police were a little upset that there were there was a drain on resources Um and so we've also seen threats to libraries around the country. And here in, in the suburbs, there's been issues with uh, sort of book bans and people targeting libraries, drag shows at libraries. Uh, so this is sort of a continuation of a trend that, mm. that's gone on. Yeah. I mean, threats to libraries. We're, we're seeing an increase in that all around the country. It's so wild to me. Yeah, this is something that the American Library Association, which is based here in Chicago, this has definitely been on their radar. And, you know, when you think of um, beyond the book bans and and some of some things like um, drag queen story hours, libraries are really, really important community resources for people to, you know, get Internet access, sometimes get health services, um, you know, learn about things. And like we saw this week, it could be a place to just get out of extreme heat. Mm -hmm. And so when libraries um, are facing these kinds of pressures and might have to close or, you know, just it's creating a hostile environment for the community to use it. It it really has these. 1246, this is WBEZ. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are back with more of our weekly news recap, giving you a closer look at the week's top stories across Chicago and Illinois. Now, before the break, we took a deep dive into Mayor Johnson's first 100 days. We also looked at what yesterday's guilty verdict from Mike Madigan's longtime chief of staff could mean for the former Speaker of the Illinois House. We still have more to get to. Our panelists are Nader Issa, who's an education reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times, Kim Belware, who's a national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post, and WBEZ's city government and politics reporter Tessa Weinberg. Kim, Wednesday night's first Republican presidential debate in Milwaukee was really a a chance for lesser known candidates to finally take center stage, right? It was also a chance for our neighbor on the north 
to shine. So how did Milwaukee fare? Yeah, well, you know, Milwaukee got a lot of attention. Yeah. I don't know. Um, you know, Milwaukee got some nice sweeping drone shots in the in the <laughs> opening. The debate was hosted by Fox News. Okay. So there was, you know, some some real action shots. Someone described it like it was the opening to Running Man. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Milwaukee gets some cool lakefront okay. lakefront shots, you know, that looked good. You know, they're the center of attention. That's a that's a reliably blue area, but for Wisconsin in general, you know, this definitely is an indication putting the first GOP debate there that um, both parties, but of course Republicans, because they lost that state in Mm -hmm. 2020, um, are going to be focusing really hard because Wisconsin, unlike us here in Illinois, is one of the few states that is still really, really competitive. There's been some shifting in recent years. States like Florida, which were swing states, you know, 20 years ago, are kind of less so. They're more Republican, reliably. Yeah. And then you have other states like, you know, Virginia, which have been trending more blue in recent years. So there's this dwindling number of states uh-huh. that uh, really are the ones everybody, they, they need it. And also... Wisconsin has 10 electoral votes. The margin for victory um, between Trump and Biden was pretty similar. It was about 14 votes. So Mm. a 10 vote state is is a really big deal. And, um, you know, they brought up all of the issues that um, is something that's going to animate Republican voters. They brought up crime. They brought up, um, you know, freedom. They brought up. Um, I'm trying to think now to what those crazy montages were. But, you know, the debate itself was interesting to me because some of the biggest issues uh, that got airtime were climate and abortion, and those really aren't animating issues for any of the candidates. Mm. Those are not the positions that they're really big on. You know, maybe with some exceptions like Mike Pence, who's very strong on um, abortion restrictions. But for the most part, it was like you said, it was this chance for um, the public to see some of these figures that hear from them hear, Yeah, Yeah. hear from them. And, you know, one person that wasn't happy to your earlier point that wasn't happy with Milwaukee being the center of of attention was former President Donald Trump. He did his own counter programming, right? With Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Yeah, he had a pre-taped interview go. You know, he dodged he dodged the debate, which in a lot of ways, I am not myself a debate fan. I don't think they're particularly useful. But you watched this just for I us. watched it just for you um, to see if I could learn anything. And you do learn a little bit. If anything, you learn about where the party is kind of distributed. So you did see some some pretty big schisms. And it'll be interesting to see how that message is fine-tuned mm-hmm. as they go through the primary process. Next summer, Milwaukee's hosting the Republican convention, and we are hosting the Democrats here in Chicago, as we know. Uh, That's got some city leaders concerned that Republican governors might purposely try to intensify that migrant crisis. Fran Spielman of the uh, Sun-Times had a story about this. Tessa, fill us in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, Brandon, Mayor Brandon Johnson's deputy chief of staff, um, Christina Passione Zayas, um, told Fran Spielman, um, you know, predict- predicted that there could be a five-fold, you know, increase in the number of buses sent to Chicago uh, ahead of the DNC next summer, saying it'd be something, you know, Republican-led states might do to try to, you know, exacerbate the crisis, embarrass Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like um, up to 10 busloads a day, they're predicting? Yeah, we'll see. Jeez. I mean, it's a far way away, um, you know, but buses haven't stopped arriving from places like Texas. Um, that's something Mayor Brandon Johnson has stressed of, you know, this is a crisis he inherited, but constantly there's a constant clip of folks, um, you know, 
Nader had mentioned earlier that, um, you know, folks were sent to L.A. during the storm. Earlier this month, uh, a three-year-old had died on a state-sponsored bus from Texas on their way to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen the kind of impacts of, of this continuing um, humanitarian crisis. But we'll have to see from a year from now as well of Mayor Brandon Johnson's administration. They've vowed to stop using police stations as a point of intake. We are still using them, as we saw this week. There was, as of last Thursday, when I got latest numbers, there was still over a thousand folks who were still in police stations across the city, even in O'Hare and Midway. And so that infrastructure, oh, people are still at the airport. Yeah, is just still not in place. And so I think, you know, part of what we'll see is is the city better, you know, has a better infrastructure by yeah. this point in time next year. Geez. All right, let's head to the South Side, Nader, where the the White Sox fired two of their longtime leaders tossing this one to you well i think it was about time this is this is sort of uh the way the did white you get Sox... my baseball reference there yeah, i did i did i wanted you to acknowledge I caught, that I, i'm clever. sorry i opened my mitt i caught it yeah um i mean this is sort of it's a long time coming it was a long time coming and it's the making of one jerry reinsdorf who runs the white Sox, similar to the way he runs the Chicago Bulls and that he trusts inside people, people he knows uh, to, to sort of run organizations and stay there. And it, the same thing happened with John Paxson with the Bulls, who was, who was leading the franchise uh, for so long and mm-hmm. sort of middling along, not really putting competitive teams on the court. The White Sox, you think back to 2019, 2020, I mean, this is a franchise who everyone was excited for, was saying they, they had a great farm system, they had a great team, they were going uh, to to make a consistent run at the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And now they, I haven't looked at the standings today, but they're one of maybe the three worst teams in the majors. And they, they, keep, they keep not offering big contracts yeah. to free agents. They also aren't making many trades. They have some weird obsession with the Kansas City Royals. They get all of their players and coaches and executives <laughs> from there. And so it's it's not a good situation for uh, Southside fans. Yeah, and, and the news continues. Greg Hines at Crane's Chicago Business wrote, Knowledgeable sources say Jerry Reinsdorf, the team's majority owner and chairman, is considering moving from guaranteed rate field in Bridgeport when the team's lease expires six years from now. I mean, can you folks imagine... Bridgeport without the White Sox? It would ruin the Subway Series. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, thoughts? I have not been to a White Sox game yet as a new-ish Chicago okay. resident. All right. <laughs> I, was, I was just about to. <laughs> That's right. All right. All right. All right. In my defense. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. 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 You, you can get away with it. I mean, Nader. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a part of the fabric of the South Side right. of, of the city. It, it One, it would be, it, it'll be hard to imagine moving the team. I think they said to Nashville was one of the potential locations. Wow. I couldn't imagine that. I also couldn't imagine them in the suburbs or somewhere else other than the south side of the city. It, it, it just, I don't know, it wouldn't feel right. I the south pe- side needs the white you side. You can use the south side alternate jersey, right. which is one, like oh, the yeah. most successful you know, like the best. What are you going to put suburbs across? the yeah. <laughs> Nobody's rocking that. Yeah. Subs. Be subs. <laughs> From socks to subs. You know, I'm hearing folks even say they would might miss the Sox more than the Cubs. Yeah, I mean, the, you the, know? the Cubs, you've sort of seen, they've the Ricketts have sort of Disney-fied the area around Wrigley Field. Um, it's it's always been, but now especially, it's sort of like a tourist the attraction. Yeah. Since the Bears are trying to move too, yeah. right? But the White Sox, it's just part of the community. It's part right. of the, the fabric of the community. Uh, tell us this here, shifting gears, Kim. The, the Logan Square Farmer's Market, 
why is it becoming so popular for its good, its own good? I mean, it is kind of a victim of its own success. I uh, That's the farmer's market I primarily go to. And it is, you know, I'll say this. I used to take my dog, would never take my dog now because it is so packed. And that's great. That is great for the vendors, for the farmers. You know, this is, I think, for some vendors, uh, you know, 20, 30 percent of their, uh, you know, of their income is doing this farmer's market. It's grown over the years. Mm-hmm. It's definitely added a lot more non-farm vendors. You go now and there's a lot more, um, you know, kind of pre-made food, lots of restaurants doing almost kind of pop-up type of things. And you have other things that I think people do want at farmer's markets, you know, products, natural products and things like that. But it has gotten too big for its footprint and that was creating a safety concern. And so organizers were going to shut it down. Mm -hmm. There was a big outcry. It's back on now. Okay. But it's unclear how those safety issues like traffic and congestion and just, you know, closures are going to be dealt with. One of the other things, too, is anybody who goes around that Logan Square Boulevard, Logan Square Monument area during the farmer's market over the past several years, you've probably noticed um, that the farmer's market itself has definitely grown larger and denser. But immediately around it, there are more people doing their own kind of pop-ups, you know, their own vendors that are selling food, that are doing yard sales. So it's just creating a lot more of a um, safety and traffic and just people moving logistical nightmare that, um, you know, residents and vendors and, you know, the aldermen have got to deal with. Yeah. Well, uh, before we go, here's a headline for those who are desperate for summer to be over. <laughs> Yesterday on the hottest day in 11 years in Chicago, Starbucks started offering its pumpkin spice latte again. Is anyone here on Team Fall? I had friends who literally said, oh, did you get the PSL? And I was like, what is a the PSL? PSL. Like, <laughs> I would not have known what that was either. Did, did you pop over to your neighborhood cafe and uh, get a hot pumpkin latte, Nader? No. So I, People are actually shocked when I say this because uh, among journalists, it's not common. But I don't really drink coffee. so. Oh, I don't drink coffee either. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not a PSL uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't be taking in any of this. I, this is this is for you all. No, I, I'm weighing in. I am no black coffee snob, but I absolutely do not want that stuff in my coffee. So, no. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also just, I mean, with people, you know, being desperate for summer to be over, you know, come February, we're going to be wishing we had some of yesterday's heat. Who are these people? Who? Right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I will never say no to the sunshine. We'll leave it there. Kim Bellware of the Washington Post, Nader Issa of the Chicago Sun-Times, and WBEZ's Tessa Weinberg. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. All right, that's it for Reset. The show is produced by Maha Ahmed, Linnea Dominic, Brenda Ruiz, Micah Yason, Claire Hyman, Michael Liptrot, Andrea Guffman, and Landon Jones. Dan Tucker is our executive producer, and Haley Bloomquist was our engineer this week. Monday on the show, Swedish Hospital on Chicago's northwest side is merging its OBGYN and midwifery programs. And some parents, midwives, and advocates, they're not happy about it. So we'll get the details from WBEZ's Kristen Schorsch. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Stay cool.